0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. We actually just dropped a new article this morning related to Christian nationalism, uh, so hopefully that is helpful. And also, if you have not yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, hit that subscribe button at the uh, underneath the video. And also like the video uh, if you're able to as well. We appreciate any of the support we can get. All right. So today we're going to be diving into some particular Baptist history. Again, I mean, we're a particular Baptist podcast, so we're going to be talking about particular Baptists at least once in a while. Um, But this work right here, Cox's work, we've brought this up on the show before, uh, is very, very helpful in looking at. Of the particular Baptist controversies and history surrounding uh, some of the particular Baptist history, especially as it relates to Nehemiah Cox himself and the formulation of our confession and, and issues that were surrounding the time of our confessions publishing in 1677. This was written before our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, came out. This was in response to Thomas Collier, the heretic. Uh, and this was part of the way that particular Baptists were actually trying to deal with Collier's heresies before they formally declared him a heretic. So this was part of that uh, process of dealing with him. But it brings out some very interesting issues surrounding Collier's theology. Now, if you remember, we've talked about Collier on the show before, but just a brief refresher. Collier was a particular Baptist who was, pretty well established as a particular Baptist and well-known among the particular Baptists at the time. Yet he deviated. He deviated. He was teaching doctrines that were not orthodox, especially about God, Christology, salvation. And they needed to be addressed because he published what he called a a confession of faith, saying what he believed. But because he was a particular Baptist, that would seem to make it appear as if this was representing particular Baptist theology. And so there needed to be a response. And I think that's why you see, probably why you see our confession, the second line of Baptist come out right after, or as this controversy was happening was because of a response to these theological errors saying, no, 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 we're not with that guy, but we are, uh, you know, we hold to these reformed biblical Teachings, and so I think you see uh, kind of this formulation of doctrine coming on the scene, uh, so that they can stand against Collier. I think that's that's likely what happened. But more specifically to our discussion today, as we're looking at Collier's understanding of reconciliation, there's some he has some very strange views as it relates to the the extent of the gospel, its purpose, and what reconciliation really means, especially in relation to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one uh, is a key passage here that that we'll be looking at uh, as we talk about Collier. So the verses in question are Colossians one verses twenty through twenty one. Colossians one verses twenty through twenty one it says, "And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven." Heaven made peace with the blood of his cross, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So this becomes kind of the the proof text that Collier will use to kind of talk about some of these different areas surrounding reconciliation. And he really brings out reconciliation in two senses in terms of his overall thesis. Okay. we're going to take a look at that here. And I'm going to be reading from a couple of different sources. So obviously Cox's work because he interacts with Collier and he quotes Collier's work. Okay. Which is a, I think it's called a further word. So we're going to look at that. And I'm going to read some from that, uh, that work that Collier had himself. You can actually find it online for free Um, old English books online. I think it's called university of Michigan has a date really helpful database of old English where you can find, Benjamin Keats, Nehemiah Cox, So you can look at those old, uh, you know, uh, works that they've done. And it's very, very helpful in my opinion. All right. So let's take a look at this here. So uh, on page 94 of this book of Cox's work, uh, Cox quotes Collier on his understanding of the above verses that we're uh, looking at here. So, and I'm going to You know, quote, I think, from Collier directly just to give context, because it appears that Cox kind of paraphrases him in this in this area. So I'll dive a little deeper here. It says this is Collier speaking, quote, this, I suppose, hath been almost a universal mistake because believers are reconciled, therefore none else. Whereas the scripture clearly states a general reconciliation and a special and both are true. One, a general reconciliation by the death of Christ, Colossians 1.20. That's what we just read a second ago. And having made peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and I think he's saying, and etc. He goes on, it's true, this intends the whole in the first sense, then it must be true in the second, relative to mankind, who is especially intended in the all things, and to be a propitiation is the same, in atonement, a peacemaking sacrifice, not imputing sin, and this is for all things, for all men. This we have likewise, Romans 5, uh, 8 and 10. But God commandeth his love toward us, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life where this first reconciliation is stated in the death of the Son of God, while sinners, enemies, which relates not to the reconciliation by faith, but as a preparative thereunto. So he's laying out kind of what his understanding is. But the key here to note is that Collier has two different understandings of reconciliation. There's a general reconciliation, and then there's a special reconciliation. He seems to pull this out from Colossians chapter 1, which I think is, is kind of interesting here. Oh, we'll dive into this a little bit more so he goes on to talk about this special revelation okay he says quote two there is a special reconciliation proper only to believers arising out of the general for if the general reconciliation had not been there couldn't have been no room for the special the special reconciliation proper only to believers we have plentifully declared in scripture but especially I shall mention the two last, which proves it to arise out of the general Colossians one is the universal reconciliation and verse 21 is the special reconciliation of believers, which is not the same as a general, but ariseth out, but arises out thereof, the first being universal and that which is passed in the blood of his cross. The second IE particular and special is obtained at and after believing you and C. now hath, been reconciled. So likewise in Romans 5 verses 8 and 10 is the general reconciliation at and by the death of his son, and that while we were yet sinners and enemies. The second is special, and for our believing and cleaving to Christ in the gospel, and not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, the reconciliation, end quote. So he brings out these two separate understandings of reconciliation a general one and a special one so what does he mean when he's talking about this general reconciliation is this something that is biblical a general reconciliation of all things all men now it's we're going to make a distinction here and based on my reading of collier and based on how cox interprets him It seems that Collier is teaching a reconciliation of literally everything. And the reason for this is if we look on page 81 of Cox's work here, he quotes Collier. And Collier says this, quote, that Christ died for the world, that is, the universe, the heavens and the earth, all things therein, the whole six days creation that fell with man for the sin of man. So he believes that creation itself fell in Adam. Like there, there's clearly some sort of fall of creation as it relates to uh, Adam's original sin. But Christ's work is not just for believers; it's for everything, the world, the universe, everything. Right. So, given that definition, it seems to me that although Collier is focusing on People in his understanding of Colossians one, I think there's a broader understanding when he means all things and the world. I think he's whether in heaven or earth. I don't think he's talking about people uh, entirely. I think his understanding of the gospel spreads farther than that, but I think he's just focusing on people in these particular verses. But it seems when you talk about the world and literally everything, it seems that there is a general uh, work of Christ. For everything, right? Because he says earlier on, he says it's true, this intends the whole in the first sense. So, everything, whether things in earth, things in heaven. Okay. So, I think, and then he makes a distinction. He says, then it must be true in the second, that is the special reconciliation relative to mankind. So, he seems to be making a distinction between that which is in heaven and on earth and all things and those things that are relative. Uh, To mankind, who is especially intended in the all things and to be a propitiation is the same atonement, peacemaking, sacrifice, not imputing sin. Okay, so a general reconciliation by the death of Christ and having made peace by the blood of his cross, reconciled all things to himself. And then there's one specifically to mankind that's intended um, in terms of that special salvation for those who believe. Right. So there does, there's a distinction being made here, it seems, between literally everything, especially since he said that Christ died for everything. So the reconciliation of uh, is tied to the death of Christ, and that's tied to all things in Collier's mind. So it seems that he's talking about literally everything, and he says this intends the whole in the first sense. So it seems literally everything the universe is being intended here, as opposed to that relative to mankind. And those who believe, right? So I think that's an important distinction to make. It says that Christ died for the universe. Okay, now this is an interesting take because he this would even go beyond it, just a pure universalist understanding of Christ's work or some kind of general atonement. Because I have never heard a universalist who would ever teach this. It say, well, Christ died for inanimate objects and animals and birds and fish, uh, the air. The sky, the clouds, you know, that I've never heard that before. And I don't think that's the case. I think what we find is that there is an understanding that even in a universal sense, Christ's work would still be just for people. Even if you believe it's all people, it stops. The buck stops with mankind. It doesn't go beyond that. And that seems to be uh, not that doesn't seem to be the case here with Collier who really takes his understanding to the, as far as you can go, well, it says all things, Christ died for everything. That seems to be where he's going with this, the universe. And that will tie in especially to his understanding of the preaching of the gospel and evangelism as it relates to the Great Commission. And I think we might look at that a little bit. Okay. And it's important to note, too, that on page 15 of Collier's work, that we're looking at here, it's called an additional word to the body of divinity or confession of faith. Remember, Collier put out what he called as a confession of faith. OK, so this is an additional word. He was adding to it. He was saying more. Right. And this is really what Cox is responding to here. But Collier is responding to the question on page 15 of his work. Quote, in what sense may the world be said to be reconciled to God and to have sin not imputed? End quote. So he brings out three different senses in which uh, this can be the case, which Collier does interact with at least some of them, or Cox does, Um, but we'll look at some of them here. Okay, again, I want to read this for context. I think it's helpful. So apologies if this is dry, but I, I want to interact with the material and discuss it, but it's helpful to the audience. I think if you hear it and understand what's actually being said rather than just hear me asserting that this is what he said. Okay, but this is from an additional word to the body of divinity or confession of faith, page sixteen by Thomas Color. Quote Number one, they are so far reconciled and sin not imputed as to have the gospel of reconciliation truly tendered to them or given to them. Sin shall not hinder the going forth of the gospel and tenders of grace and reconciliation to the world, that whosoever do accept it on the same terms thereof might be reconciled and saved. Mark 16:15. In uh, sixteen, number two, the world is so far reconciled and sin not imputed as it shall not hinder their re- resurrection and restitution out of the fallen state. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two, Acts three twenty one, and the second death shall be for sin against the new covenant and gospel law of grace for not accepting the reconciliation and salvation on the terms thereof. John three nineteen, number three, there is in this marvelous transaction a more special design of grace in the most special end thereof. Viz. Christ died for the salvation of the elect of his church, and this is likewise, as fully stated in the word of truth, as the other, that they shall have the special benefit thereof. And this we have in such scriptures as these, John ten fifteen. I lay down my life for the sheep, Ephesians five twenty five. He also loved the church and gave himself for it. And on this account, it is that Christ saith, Matthew twenty six twenty eight. this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. For it was shed on account of special grace, i.e. for remission of sins to all who believe and obey the gospel. But of this I shall speak more in the next chapter about the matters of election, end quote. So there he's laying out what he means by reconciliation of the world. Okay, And again, the broader understanding appears to be that Cox thinks that Christ died for literally everything and that reconciliation applies broadly speaking. Right to literally everything that seems to be the case from my reading of him. There are some things in here when he qualifies what he means by that that seems to indicate he's talking about the gospel going to all in reconciliation of the world. But he makes it very clear that Christ died for everything, right, for the reconciliation of the world, uh, and that whosoever do accept it on the same terms might be reconciled or saved. So it does seem that. He's focusing his attention on mankind here in terms of the world being reconciled um, to God rather than focusing on all things, even though he's made it clear that Jesus did die for the universe. So it does seem that there is a general reconciliation of all things, but in terms of mankind, there seems to be this understanding that one still must believe the gospel in order to be saved. uh, And which is interesting because then it, it's like, why are you making a distinction between this general reconciliation where you still must believe the gospel and then a special reconciliation of the elect uh, who still must do the same exact thing? It's as if he's trying to make a distinction, but there really isn't a difference there right at the end, fundamentally. So he gets into some problems here when he tries to make these weird distinctions and reconciliation. OK, now, one thing that I appreciate about reading uh, Nehemiah Cox is—he likes to mock Collier. Okay, let's look at uh, pages one hundred two or one hundred three of this. Yeah, he he kind of mocks Collier a little bit for some of the things that he's saying. It's important to understand here again. You you heard Collier mention Mark sixteen fifteen as it relates to the preaching of the gospel, right? Well, it's interesting. We see what Collier believed about the gospel. This is from Cox's work on page 102, and he's quoting Collier here. Uh, he says, uh, Cox says, quote, There are two scriptures produced by him, that is Collier, Mark 16, 15, and Colossians 1, 23. The first saith, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, concerning which he tells us, The word translated to every creature is in the Greek, to all the creation, and he quotes the Greek, into uh, to all the creation so basically what collier's conclusion is is because the text says to all creation that means we got to preach the gospel to every inanimate object rocks trees birds everything right completely missing the point point. and so Co- cox mocks him a little bit right it's kind of it, it's kind of funny Uh, He says, Cox says, quote, I know not some great thing he hath imagined in his criticism that nobody else can find out, else he would not have uh, inculcated inculcated it. It was such a tautology as he doth, or it may be he only took this occasion to show his skill in the Greek. But if that be it, I must beg his pardon, for I think it is not much learning, but something else that hath made him so far forget himself as to interpret the scripture after such a manner as he hath. There is doubtless no more intended to in Mark than is, in other words, expressed by Matthew in the second and in, in his record of the Great Commission. And he goes on to show why Collier is wrong in his assertions. But it, it is kind of humorous to see how. Cox just he mocks him, he writes him off like, what are you talking about? You're being you're being foolish here that like you would take this conclusion when we have other clear places in Scripture that. Uh, seem to indicate otherwise. So it it is kind of interesting to see kind of where, you know, he goes with this. And then on page 101, uh, Cox talks about the understanding of the the gospel that Collier has, right? Uh, Let's see here. So we've already quoted some of this, uh, published in mancern falls may be preached to the whole creation though they hear it not nor no they hear it not nor understand it. So Collier believes that the gospels will be preached to literally everything, even if they can't hear it. So if it's a rock on the ground you preach the gospel to it, even if they can't hear it, or understand it, you still preach it to them because of Mark 16, 15 and Colossians 1 23. Re- absolutely ridiculous. And and Cox kind of responds in kind. He says, quote, I suppose in this particular Mr. Collier may truly say that he hath not followed authors, for I know none before him that have so found as to assert what here here he doth, though in other things it is evident that he hath imbibed the notions of diverse heretics, diverse heretics that have been before him. Although I must confess that the papists and some of their legends tell many odd stories of this purpose, that we may collect from thence that some of them what some of them thought in this matter. And although Protestants deride their foppery, that will not discourage Mr. Collier from joining with them in this and other things. For he hath observed, as he tells us, page 59, that the Protestants run themselves too much in both principle and practice beyond almost all works of charity, amongst which perhaps he reckons preaching to birds, men, beasts, and uh, stones, and trees, and see. If I should recite to Mr. Collier some of the stories they tell of St. Francis, his preaching off to the birds, and how affectionately they heard him, his converting a ravenous wolf from his rapine to the tame and harmless life in sea, and of Father Bede, his preaching to the stones when he was blind, and his naughty boy led him in the heap of stones instead of a company of men, and how in his close devotion they all cried with a loud voice, Amen. So again, you can see that there is, you know, there, there's just mockery here. It's such a ridiculous view. And even on page 103, Cox says this, if this were true, and, and again, this is in response to Color's understanding that the gospel is to be preached to everything. If this were true, the apostles needed to not have gone abroad into the world to have preached the gospel to every creature. But I am persuaded if one at London should pretend that he daily preached the gospel to the Turks in Constantinople, that hear him not, or to the animate and inanimate creatures that either are not capable of hearing or understanding what he saith. many would laugh at his folly and conclude the man was under a delirium, but none would think that he truly preached the gospel to any of these, nor yet that it was worth their while to refute his conceit by argument. So <laughs> Cox is basically, eh, it's not even really worth the time. It's so stupid and ridiculous that they, people wouldn't even give him the time of day. Uh, but, I mean, this is this is what we're dealing with here, and this is the kind of. And Cox wrote this when he was very young, too. I think in his twenties when he wrote this. So I mean, he's he's quite smart, quite energetic, and just hounding Collier for his ridiculous notions of uh, of uh, theology, especially as it relates to the gospel and the extent thereof. So it is kind of interesting that he. He goes down this road, but I find it entertaining in reading. It's one reason why reading The Old Guys is so enjoyable sometimes. It's it's sometimes very satisfying. Sometimes the way they deal with heretical doctrines and heretics, they just chop them to pieces. Just no, no prisoners taken. Just this, we're dealing with critical matters of faith. We're not beating around the bush. We're just going to slice and dice. There is a place for that. And uh, you do see some of that here with Cox and the mockery and the in the jovialness. Uh, I wouldn't say flippancy, but just mocking with derision because of how foolish and wicked the teachings of Collier were in the twisting of the gospel and the scriptures. Uh, it's absolutely worth mocking and twist and uh, deriding someone who persists in that kind of doctrine. So it is it is kind of humorous to see what's going on there. All right. It's also important to remember that Collier is writing his work in a scholastic fashion. So as we're looking at, you know, these questions and answers, um, Collier will bring up like an objection and then he'll answer it or he'll pose a question and answer it. This is similar to how Turretin would write in his institutes, how Aquinas writes in his summa. Um, It's just this very scholastic type of thinking and, and writing where you have this systematic way of, in detailed systematic way of dealing with these difficult theological issues. And it's helpful when you're reading it because then you cannot kind of understand like potential objection questions, or it makes very clear. Uh, I, I guess maybe sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't what the author is trying to communicate because he's answering a question. He's not just making a statement because when you understand the opposition the question being posed, and then someone answers it. Sometimes it can help clarify any confusion that might go on. But I think here Collier ends up confusing things even more <laughs> than he's actually uh, helping himself. Okay. Um, so looking at our original passage where we read the the two senses of reconciliation, it is in response to an objection that Collier poses. And the objection is thus, he says, quote, the the two last scriptures mentioned speak of Christ as a propitiation and reconciliation, not imputing sin, this being proper only to believers and therefore cannot intend the world in the largest sense because none are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus through the not imputing of sin, but believers. End quote. so it this is collier responding to this objection that the work of christ is only for believers in other words he's rejecting the idea of particular redemption and saying that there is a reconciliation of the world which he's already defined the world as the universe right as we read earlier so that seems to be what he's talking about here okay and this is i think how cox interprets him if we look at page 95 of Cox's work. He seems to interpret uh, this way uh, in terms of the world. Cox says, quote, I answer not in this sense, for if we understand by the world as he doth the whole universe, to talk of the reconciliation of birds, beasts, stones, and trees and sea unto God without any distinction and the non imputation of sin unto them that were never under any law is absurd and foolish. No, nor yet is it true in respect of all and every one of the sons of the wor- in, of men in the world. For the greatest part of them live and die enemies in their minds to God. They are children of wrath by nature, Ephesians 2, 3, and lie in the wicked one. 1 John 5, 19, and the wrath of God abideth on them, John 3, 36. But Mr. Collier saith, they are so in the twofold respect. And then he talks, um, you know, about that distinction and what senses we are reconciled the world is reconciled um to god so there does seem to be maybe even some confusion by cox in terms of what is meant by reconciliation but i think based on my own reading and reading cox i think it's it's clear to me and i or more clear anyways as i'm studying these things is that collier was talking about everything that's how he defines the world he's talking about a General reconciliation. I just don't think he does a very good job of explaining it and gets himself in knots by trying to make that distinction where there is none. And so I think that that creates some uh, interesting problems there. Okay. All right. So, looking, so we've looked a little bit at the general reconciliation that Collier is bringing out. Now, what about the special one? He talks about this special. He says, a special reconciliation of believers, which is not the same as the general, but ariseth out of it. Now, again, I find it difficult how he can make a distinction from those things, um, unless, of course, he's talking about literally everything, a general reconciliation, which would include all men, but then a, a general reconciliation of everything literally. So I guess maybe that's the difference, but I think you you run into Problems, especially if you're concluding including all men in that general reconciliation, distinct from the second special one. So it gets kind of messy. Okay, so on page one hundred one, in the passage we mentioned earlier about the preaching of the gospel, Collier distinguishes between a general gospel call and a special. One is to be more focused than the other, and somehow there is a special reconciliation that comes to believers that nothing else, although also reconciled under the same blood of Christ has and it again this is where it gets you kind of scratch your head and you're like hmm okay and what's the difference really um uh, so it it gets really odd really fast okay so collier's usage of, of colossians one let's take a look at that real quick his usage of colossians one so he takes a literalist approach to the text okay in a way that really isn't appropriate Uh, literal is good, and there's, you know, we we shouldn't automatically assume that there's some sort of esoteric meaning in a text. We should be able to take a text at its plain meaning, unless, of course, we know that other scriptures uh, don't let us take that plain meaning, and we have to be careful about that, right? So literal is good, but it can be abused, and we ought to make sure we're doing it correctly. Okay, our Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, says the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Seems pretty straightforward, right? And this is, you know, called the analogy of faith. We see uh, Owen, I think Owen talked about this. Um, Renahan, Jim, Jim Renahan, in his commentary on the Second London, talks about this too on this very paragraph. But you do see this understanding that scripture interprets itself, right? It's not, it's a cohesive whole, and they're not going to contradict each other. But there's also going to be passages that are not going to be as clear as other passages. And that means that you have to, yeah, and that means that you have to interpret those passages using other clear places, right? You know, when you're talking about a doctrine of God, we don't read literalist passages like an open theist might, where we start saying things like God has literal hands or God has literal physical eyes, right? We wouldn't say that because we know the scriptures clearly teach that God is spirit. We know the scriptures teach that God is unchangeable. There's nothing creaturely in God, and so we can't read those categories back into those texts. So we have to interpret those texts in a different way right? We don't just literally take them off the, the text and go, okay, God has eyes. I guess, you know, conversation's over. He must be like us. We would never say that, or at least Orthodox Christianity doesn't. So we we have to take the clearer passages or interpret the less clear. Scripture interprets itself, right? So we can't grab what we feel a text says. We have to interpret the scriptures in light of other scriptures. And that's what Collier and Pharisee do here. And that's why I think he takes these passages so far is because he's not reading them in the broader context of biblical revelation. Every creature, that means every creature, even though it, it that makes no sense in light of the purpose of the gospel, and that's why you have to have an understanding of the purpose of Christ's work, because then you understand who the gospel should go to. It doesn't go to every person or everything without exception. It's meant to go to the whole world right? And of course, verse 15 of Mark 16 is a controversial passage because it falls to, you know, do you believe in the longer ending or the shorter ending or no, or does it end at verse eight? You know, there's those questions as well, but whatever the case, it would be a misinterpretation of that passage regardless, uh, even if it was scripture. Um, And even if it uh, wasn't, we wouldn't interpret the scriptures to teach that we preach to every creature without that exception okay so again because we're using other passages of scripture and other principles in scripture to bring that to light okay so looking at the text itself okay So we're looking at the text itself in verses 15 through 17 of colossians 1 all things is used in two different contexts okay in verses 15 through 17, the context is the creation of literally everything, right? And this is consistent with what we find in Romans eleven thirty six. Romans eleven thirty six, right? For from him, to him, through him, uh, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever Amen. right? So everything comes from God. That means everything was created by God. There's nothing before him. There's nothing that God depends on. There's nothing before him at all. If there was something that God depended on, that thing would be prior to God because it makes God who he is. So God would have to logically come after the thing that he's depending on. God uh, does not depend on anything. All things come from God. Nothing goes to God. Okay, so that's that's very important as we we look at this. So the passage in Colossians one teaches that Christ made all things that the Father made all things through Jesus Christ and that he uh, sustains all things uh, as well. So let's talk about the creation of all things. Okay. But then all things is used in the second context for discussion of salvation. Did Christ reconcile all the world? Speaking as Collier seems to indicate. Okay. And I, I think another place where we can see kind of the usage of how Collier is going here is a place like First Corinthians 15, 22, for as an Adam, all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive, right? So there's, you know, the usage of all. And if you read that quickly, you might think, oh, okay, well, in Adam, all are going to die. But the converse of that is that all shall be made alive, right? It's like, not exactly. Not exactly. We have to look at other passages of Scripture. We have to look at what does in Christ mean to make sure that we are reading this directory. But this verse does seem to follow the trajectory of Colossians 1. We have the usage of all used in two different contexts here. And if not read without any qualifiers, it seems that they both mean the same thing, right? However, as we understand the nature of covenant theology like the covenant of works with Adam what does it mean to be in Adam And the covenant of grace and what does it mean to be in Christ we quickly see that all cannot be comprehensive of every person but only all those people respect to the federal head they are in right so all humanity is in Adam and fallen Romans 5 yet as we look at the new covenant we see a different story right if we look at Hebrews chapter 8, we see that very clearly, that Christ is the mediator of that covenant, and we receive covenant benefits from the federal head. We become righteousness, justification, or righteousness, redemption, sanctification, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So you do see being united to that person, you receive those benefits. This is covenantal language here. Or in the case of Adam, you receive curses. We would have received benefits if Adam had obeyed perfectly, but we're in we're united to him, and he is the mediator of that new covenant, including the federal head, because by being united to him, we receive the benefits that he, I guess you could say, won for us, right? The benefits of his righteousness, passive and active, right? Redemption, sanctification. We receive those benefits that the federal head has the right to give, Right by being in Jesus Christ, so he's acting as our representative. Right, we receive all those benefits in him. So clearly, that can't mean literally every single person without exception. Right, so there would be you know a a problem there. So we have to interpret the context of we have to interpret all in the context of the passage being discussed and other places in scripture because now we're getting outside of the passage of first Corinthians 15 and interpreting all in light of those specific contexts of being in Christ, of being in Adam, which requires us to go to other passages of scripture that speak more clearly on the subject, right? This is hermeneutics 101. This is reformed hermeneutics. This is consistent with the the presentation of how scripture gives us the word. And that's the, the mindset that we have to have. So we use those clear passages. And what's applied in 1 Corinthians 15 that we just talked about can also be applied to Colossians 1 because the same principle uh, principles of the, are there, us being dead in Adam and alive in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read a little bit, just real quick, of Cox's response to Collier. Uh, this is... Uh, da, 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 I lost my spot here. Here we go. This is from page 94. Very brief. and Then we'll start to close out. Quote, these texts do in no wise prove what Mr. Collier doth produce them for. The first mention, viz, Colossians one twenty, is by diverse, learned, and judicious men, interpreted according to the subject matter, all things, i.e. the whole church or family of God in heaven, viz, the spirits of just men made perfect in earth, i.e. the elect still in the world, even as all are reconciled, so are in Christ. So he's using that language, covenantal language of being in Christ. So if they're Being reconciled, they are in Jesus Christ. And if he carry it farther, as some able interpreters do also, and will have angels included, and also the fabric of heaven and earth and the creatures therein made for the service of man, yet it cannot on a like account be applied to all these. We cannot rightly conceive of a reconciliation of angels, properly so-called, that never sinned. It is at most but an analogical reconciliation, that being confirmed in grace and secured in their situation in Christ. And so with respect to the things that are in the world, it can be, but a metaphorical reconciliation for they never sinned. Neither was God angry with them as breakers of his law, which they were not made under indeed, as God commanded that all did belong, that all that did belong in at Achan should be destroyed for his sin. So we may conceive that the whole creation was made for man's use, came under a curse for his sake and, and for the farther farther declaration of hatred and sin must be perished with him had it not been for the mediator. And so Christ keeps off the wrath that was pouring forth upon man and all his uh, substance, if I may say. But this comes much short of Mr. Collier's purpose and is so far from proving any special reconciliation arising out of the general that it is from hence manifest that the last mentioned is a fruit and adjacent to the first. So you do see this Again, this understanding of of Cox's or of Collier's view here uh, as it relates to, um, you know, this general and special reconciliation that Cox starts to bring out here. And he's responding to it. All things is related to believers who are in Jesus Christ. That seems to be where Cox is, is going here. And I think he's providing different viewpoints to kind of help with the discussion. But this seems to be where he lands. So. Uh, you know, I hope this has been helpful. Again, it was just, I know, kind of a deep dive into a very specific uh, set of particular Baptist teachings. But I mean, that's why we're here, right? Partly why we're here as a podcast. You want to bring out these particular Baptist understandings, this particular Baptist history, preserving the history. I want to make more people aware of things like this. Even people who aren't Reformed Baptists can benefit from this. I mean, heck, Joel Beakey, put his name on this book as an endorser. Uh, and it's, it's actually very interesting if you look at his uh, review of it. Uh, he says, In the theological battles of the 17th century, a young but gifted Baptist divine named Nehemiah Cox penned a defense of the doctrines of God, the Trinity election, particular redemption, original sin, perseverance, justification, and eternal punishment. Cox's book illustrates the doctrinal commitments not only of those subscribing to the Second London Baptist Confession, but also of Reformed churches in general, as Cox's citation of William Ames, John Owen, and Gisbertus voetus demonstrate, may God be pleased to use this work again to strengthen those who raise the banner of Christian Orthodoxy. So he's seeing these as uni- universally Reformed doctrines, right? So he's saying that we can have a, a Catholicity here in terms of uh, holding to these to these truths. So I want to make people aware, especially those in the Reformed Baptist world, I really want to make aware of things like this and be able to dive into some of the theology. I think for over the past maybe three or four decades, this stuff just wasn't available, or at least available in a way that people either knew about or maybe it wasn't readily accessible. And so the Reformed Baptist world looked very different maybe 30, 40 years ago, very different than it does now. And you had different players in the field, but now we have a recovery of our historical roots, a greater focus on our confession from a historical perspective, old works like this being published again or being, yeah, I guess being published again and being brought front and center and accessible to people. The, the Renahan's having a big play in this, Barcelos and others. So it's, I want to draw attention to that. There's so much here from a particular Baptist history standpoint that I think a lot of people in the Reformed Baptist tradition just have no clue about. And I want to put these things front and center that people can read them. They can understand them. I want to try and discuss things like this as, uh, you know, as we're doing this podcast in our ministry uh, I think these things are very important. Understanding our history, it can help us. The work, a lot of the work on theology issues, theological issues, has been done. It doesn't mean these men were perfect in everything. I'm not saying that, but they've done a lot of the legwork for us. You know, you look at some of these passages. You go, wow, it says all things. Wow, did Jesus really, or did the Lord really mean that when he wrote that in Scripture? And then you go to places like this, men who have struggled with these things, with men who did teach. Theoretical and aberrant doctrines, uh, doctrines that deviated, and they tried to work these things out and they brought us solutions to these things. So I think that under, helping us to go to these old works, especially in, a, in the particular Baptist tradition for Reformed Baptists, I think is incredibly helpful. So I want to put these types of things front and center for you as the audience to be able to do your own research and have resources to be able to study these things. You don't get tripped up by the silliness. It's floating around in RB circles today. Uh, that we can learn from our history and see its consistently, consistency, not only with the Church Catholic, but the the Scriptures, and benefit from them. We have such a tremendous blessing to have this material in our hands today that maybe forty years ago, Reformed Baptists just didn't have access to in a ready fashion. So, again, I, I hope this is helpful, and. Um, you know, I, I hope that this is beneficial as you do your own study. All right. So some upcoming uh, stuff. Next week we're going to have two episodes. We're going to have one on Monday on the holiday on MLK Day, during the day, uh, having Joel set a case on the show to talk about some uh, stuff regarding apologetics, and then on Saturday the twentieth, Brother Tom Hicks is going to be on the show talking about justification, federal vision. Uh, and maybe some other things as well. But uh, we're going to start having some guests, two guests in January and two guests in February. I'll announce the February ones as we get closer. But for now, Joel set a case and Tom Hicks. So hopefully those will be beneficial discussions for you and you'll enjoy them. But anyways, thank you for joining me today. Everyone have a great holiday weekend if you're in the U.S. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Monday. Take care.